0: Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Friday, it is the 27th of the 8th. Michael, how have you been since Wednesday? Let's say I've been fine, Gary, and just... I'm always happy that your life hasn't fallen apart in the two days you have to do so. What? Is it... Being a hero, I would never admit it, even if it had. So, to begin with, on the last episode we were talking about the amnesty for undocumented migrants or illegal immigrants or irregular workers or whatever way you have. And I was saying that the statistics don't seem to make a lot of sense, no one can provide any evidence for them, and the government is briefing people about numbers that I don't think they can stand over. Subsequent to that episode, the Department of Justice has admitted to me that the department has no estimates, no figures on how many... Uh, illegal immigrants are in the country that the figure of 17,000 which they have been briefing to people as being the max number of people that the amnesty may uh, involve is in fact a estimate provided to them by a pro-amnesty NGO and they have absolutely nothing to back it and there is no cap on the amnesty scheme so effectively the government didn't do the Basic due diligence to try and work out how many of these people might actually be available.
1: No, oh, no, oh, 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 no, 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 that's not, no, no, sorry, that's, no, I have to get, I have to come in there. No, no, that's, the government very carefully has avoided knowing how many people this will apply to. And they will have gone to a lot of effort, Gary, a lot of effort to make sure that that's happened. Imagine yourself a passionate supporter of a sporting club endeavour type situation and they're paying in one of their larger and more important game match situations and you don't want to know because you want to see the match and enjoy it as if it were live but you can't see it live and the efforts that you will go to to go around you will have your cover your ears in situations where you might hear la 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 and you'll avoid people desperately that might possibly let slip the The government, in much the same fashion, have put their fingers in their ears. They have la 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 They have avoided being in the presence of anybody who might slip in some kind of guesstimate of the numbers. So they can be in the position that they're in. It's not good enough, Greg, just to dismiss this and say they didn't do the due diligence. They have been very diligent, carefully avoiding any kind of information or knowledge base that they could later be accused of.
0: Yeah, what I found quite interesting about this story is that the recent statements by The two ministers involved don't directly reference the 17,000 figure, but all of the reporting of it references that figure. Almost like Michael. They were briefing people on that figure, but didn't want it directly attributed to themselves.
1: Almost like that, Gary. It's uncanny. But that's obviously not, not, not what
0: happened. No, obviously that's not what happened here. But yes, yeah, so the government has uh, has announced an amnesty for illegal immigrants. No,
1: no, no, no. He has announced a regularisation of a series of individuals. And it should be very clear. Because if he was to announce an amnesty, again, jeez, you're not on good form this morning, Gary. An amnesty would be illegal under European
0: law. Well, you know, Michael, that's a good point. Because I did ask the department about that uh, that exact issue. Well, weirdly enough, there's a question of whether it would be illegal or whether or not we've just signed up to non-binding things, which mean we shouldn't do it. But what they said, Michael, is this is not a group amnesty, and it's not a mass regularisation, because while we will be allowing potentially tens of thousands of people to come forward and apply for this scheme, they will be vetted on a case-by-case basis, and therefore it is not a mass regularisation, but rather a large number of, of singular regularizations happening under the same policy.
1: Case by case basis. Well, I'll tell you, it's going to be hard on the vets in the country. Kerry, question, just speculation more. There's, we'll, we'll, we'll buy pro tem the number 17,000, right? These cases are going to be vetted on an individual case by case basis. Now, do you think that this will, seven since there are 17,000, and they're going to be case by case, individually vetted. Do you think this process will be finished before the end of the universe or soon after the end of the universe?
0: Well, it's hard to tell, Michael. I mean, the heat death of the universe is coming rapidly for us all.
1: This is true. I think this could take maybe, well, several billion years to do Any, I'm just looking at the basis of how long it takes to deal with the cases of people who have applied for asylum and how long, if those people have a certain amount of, you know, sort of, Fuck off, I'm staying here and listen to them. And decide to go through the various appeal processes that are available. You know, how long that that process can take. If you've got 17,000, only 17,000, and you're going to go through each case individually, and vet, vet them, Gary. Not just check their numbers. Okay, we have you coming in on a ticket, so you've been here for five years. Okay, yeah, that's fine. But vet, Gary. There's a, there's a good, strong, investigative feeling about that word. They do that in spy movies, Gary. spec we have you have to vet them. So I'm saying that 17,000 people. I've been feeling this for a long, long time, and some of these poor bastards are going to end up dead before they have Irish passports.
0: Yeah, Michael, I'm afraid that that appears to be what the department has to do in order to avoid breaching some of these things we signed up on, such as you know the 2008 EU pact on asylum and migration. So, but no, the thing about this, Michael, is it's case by case, and therefore not a mass regularisation. It's effectively. A fractal, if you will. If you look at it from a distance...
1: (laughs) Because that really
0: helps, Yeah,
1: That really helps for the listener to understand, is to say it's a fractal. Now all of our people
0: go, Ah, of course, it's a fractal. It's all coming together. (laughs) Yeah, so if you look at it from a distance, it looks like a mass regularization. And then you can ask, is a mass regularization not just like a mass amnesty. No, if you break it down, it's actually case-by-case regularizations, perfectly in compliance with everything we've signed up for, and absolutely not an amnesty. And I think that's important to stress.
1: I think what you're saying here, Gary, basically is this cow is very small. Those cows are far away.
0: I did actually find, speaking about how many uh, undocumented migrants are in the country, no, Brin, the Sinn Féin TD.
1: And experts on housing.
0: Yeah, which actually... Quite tightly relates with the area of undocumented migration because it has an influence on the housing market. Oh, no, in 2007 gave an estimate of how many undocumented migrants there were in the Republic in the doll, yes. His figure was not 17,000. It wasn't even the higher 26,000. His figure was 126,000.
1: It's 109,000 have gone home. Between then and now, what happened, Gary? I know the crash happened, but then the, the economy picked up again.
0: Were he to still be roughly right, that would be considerably more than the 17,000 the government is talking about. And as we said, they, they've confirmed to me that there's no plans to put a cap on that. Which seems weird, considering they themselves have said they have no idea how many people could go for it. And you would think it would be terribly embarrassing if 100,000 people went for it after you've told people there's only 17,000 people who could. uh uh-huh. But anyway, I just wanted to open by pointing out that we've now got clarification on that, and I hope it's straightforward for everyone.
1: Well, I think I think we have made it straightforward for everyone, and we've done a public service. This is one of those days there you can put your microphone down, going away, have your cup of coffee feeling. You know, you've done some good. Yeah, and if you were confused, just
0: sum it up. It's a fractal. It's a fractal, exactly. Some might say it's an Ouroboros. Either of those, I think, are perfectly acceptable. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, who are those? Who are those people, Carrie? Who are those people saying it's horrible? Some would say it's horrible. Who? Who? Who would say that?
0: <laughs> anyway, sorry. Moving on. So. Afghanistan. Not funny. Not funny. We're going to, we're going to talk briefly about Afghanistan before moving on to other things, because it continues to go horrifically. However, before we get to the horrific news about Afghanistan and about America, I wanted to open just by a mention of a story that's doing the rounds in the Scottish papers and in like the the red tops in, uh, in the UK. None of the top tier, uh, newspapers have reported it yet. So have a little bit of skepticism skepticism as to the truth of this. However, the headline in The National, which is a big Scottish uh, publisher, is Home Office faces furious backlash over Afghan helpline blunder. Now the blunder in question, the Home Office set up a Afghanistan hotline for those who were in non-British nationals in Afghanistan who needed aid. True, some sort of technical glitch, Callers to the emergency Afghan aid hotline were redirected to a different location, and it wasn't a different department or a different hotline. They were, in fact, redirected to a washing machine repair company in Coventry. It's fantastic. I'm not sure how this happened. No one seems to be sure how this happened.
1: Are we Are we happy that this is, in some any sense, true? Uh, it's 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 not only reported in the national; it's reported in some sort of number of the red tops. Now, I'm not actually impugning the accuracy of the reporting in tabloids, because very often it's it's actually better than the so-called is own quality papers, because they're not bothered going around wield, wielding ideological axes all over the place.
0: The the national has said that the Home Office admitted to them that this had occurred, and that it was a technical glitch. Technically, it is a, yeah, fairness, It is a bit of a glitch. The, peop- the, the sort of people who would have been using this hotline would have been, let's say, people who worked with the British in Afghanistan, but were not British citizens themselves. So, you know, Afghan translators, aid workers, people who might be viewed by the Taliban as collaborators. So, imagine that. You've worked with the British for years. The Taliban are coming. Your family is now in danger. But the British offer you a lifeline in this hotline. You call it. And suddenly it's a man in Coventry asking about a tumble dryer.
1: Uh, one thing I would also observe here, and just from a practical point of view, uh, because I know this from my own experience, that even if you speak a language really well, the telephone is always a challenge. You don't have the facial clues for expression and to- uh, that you would have in a conversation face-to-face. You can't watch the lips. So if you're you're trying to work out what words are being formed, that kind of... It's much more difficult speaking easily on a telephone you're also Gary you know being in a situation where you think you and your family may be about to be killed and you know killed in kind of nasty ways as well possibly you may be in a state of rank terror which also will affect your capacity to speak a foreign language and to comprehend a foreign language so you get on the phone and you may not have access much to a phone maybe you know you don't have and this is not you may not have that much credit for international cause I don't know if this was a a free line or what? Well, that was working. Anyway, you get on, you get through, and you get... Where was this located? Coventry. Coventry. So in the, you get someone with a nice Midlands accent asking if you... Well, <laughs> is it a hot point? <laughs> because they've been having a lot of trouble with hot points lately. I mean, this is... The only question when you hear this story initially is, who would have wrote it? I mean, what, con- what skit show... We were talking about this beforehand. What what comedy or comic team would have actually done this as a skit? Because there is that quality about it. The picture of the scene of the the, hor- the horrendously terrified poor bastard in Afghanistan on the phone finally gets through, and you get somebody who wants to fix their washing machine. That is it's also kind of when you the because the, the context of the thing, is, it's 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 surreal, but it's very black.
0: You wonder how was this something people realised immediately, or did people end up having like a couple of minutes of a call before realising suddenly, oh, you're not going to save my family's life, you're a washing machine repairman.
1: And the washing machine being repairman, because the people of Coventry, I'm sure, are fewer, decent and more hearted people, is there thinking. This bloke doesn't want me to fix his washing machine. He wants me to get his family out of Kabul and save their lives. And as much as I'd like to do that, it's kind of outside the area of my
0: expertise. Being a washing machine repairman, I just don't have the resources for that sort of move.
1: Not since they closed the airport. (laughs) I don't know. How do you do this? How is it? I mean really How? also you're right because you're there you know you're having those conversations with people and because you maybe you think there's a a breakdown a little bit you know you missed a word or there's a breakdown in understanding or translation or something so i'm sure these people have talked to them for a while and realized eventually just having to accept this person is having a different conversation than the conversation i am having he keeps talking about spin cycles and and bin noise and drum noise and and, and i'm talking about the bastards are coming to get me they're in the next village what can i do and he say well you know have you been using a lint trap so there's a, that moment where you think to yourself yeah we're having a different conversation here but I've never set up an international telephone helpline, Gary, so I don't know if this is something which is easy to do. But it strikes me as kind of hard to do. I mean, surely it's easier to get it right than to get someone connected with a washing machine repair shop in Coventry.
0: I would have quite liked to see, assuming, as we said, this is true, it's been reported in, I think, three or four newspapers now. And you would assume each of those went to the home office about this. But on the assumption it is true, I would have quite liked to have been in the home office building when they started getting calls from the media saying that hotline you put together to try and save people's lives is redirecting them to a washing machine repair shop in Coventry. What do you have to say about that?
1: Uh, we're, we're, we're fixing that now.
0: But, uh, it shouldn't be doing that. Also, speaking of sketch show, I believe if this was going to appear on any comedy show, it would have been uh, Jam, the Chris Morris Sketch show.
1: Um, you maybe. I although I think it's a bit. It's a bit sort of. It's a bit more farce than you'd expect. You'd expect for a jam. I can imagine maybe Harry Hill. I don't know why I'm picking Harry Hill because I'm not actually a fan of Harry Hills.
0: Or maybe Spike Milligan if you are going to go sort of a classic. Could have gone for like a Carry On film, except in the end everyone gets shot.
1: Yeah, one of the dark Carry Ons. They didn't do so well. They only made two, and then they said no. Let's go back up to carry on the... There you are. Anybody, anybody who seen carry on up the Khyber, they'd know how to do with Afghanistan. Sending men with kilts.
0: Anyway. But on to the less amusing story. The American uh, response has not been going well. And that was before 12 Marines were killed in a suicide bombing. There was a, there was a, a bit of a review of how much equipment the Taliban had gotten. And I believe the valuation currently is, what was it, to uh, 85 Billion? Yeah. Uh, Apparently the Taliban are now one of the world's largest owner of Blackhawk helicopters. They, well now, I haven't done
1: the counting, so I'm relying on people in newspapers to do counting for me. They're saying that they have now, they're in the top five world armed forces when it comes to helicopter
0: fleets. Now, this is coming from a Republican congressman, but one who had access to that sort of information. It is a a rather spectacular list of things the Taliban have been... uh, let have. I did like that when this was announced by the Republicans, it was a sort of and President Biden has given no plans for how he plans, for how he no idea of how, how he plans to get this equipment back. And you sort of went well, that's I would assume because you're not getting the equipment back. That seems pretty obvious.
1: I only thought you know you know take back nor you know, you know it's, it keeps these. Finders keepers, surely, is the the
0: rule which would apply in this case. Then it turned out that the Americans were, uh, according to the Americans, relying on the Taliban to protect their people, which is kind of lucky, actually, that they left them all of that equipment.
1: Sorry, I'm going to need some context here. The, The Americans are relying on the Taliban
0: to protect their people. As in, American people or The Pentagon said that they were expecting the Taliban to, in their quote, protect us. There have been suggestions
1: over the last year and more that Joe Biden, at times, is not working on all of his cognitive cylinders. This didn't come from Joe Biden. That's my point. It's it's almost as if there's some kind of just general cognitive malaise Settling over the whole of the administration. And maybe Joe is the typhoid Mary of cognitive disability going through the American governance.
0: This came from General Frank McKenzie, who is the commander of CENTCOM. And what he actually said in full was that uh, he was talking about people they've talked to. And he said, and that includes the Taliban, who are actually providing the outer security cordon around the airfield to make sure they know what we expect them to do to protect us. And we will continue to coordinate with them as they go forward.
1: So, you see, the thing is, there are elements of this which are just broad, farce, surreal. And then there's an element of it which is absolutely the case. Because right now, it seems to be that they need at least the Taliban to protect them from attacks by ISIS.
0: Yeah, and then you have the story that Politico broke about the lists of Americans and uh, those who had worked with the American forces that had been given to the Taliban by the Biden administration.
1: This is one of those stories that, again, I, not, not sarcastically, you, you read twice and then you read it again to see that you haven't missed some central salient
0: point. So what the, what the actual story was, and this is as Politico reported it, that the White House shared names and addresses and relevant information with the Taliban of Americans and Afghani allies, to Americans, who they wanted to be let out of the country. And they said they gave them these names because they needed the Taliban to let them into the airport. Because, as the previous quote mentioned, Michael, the Taliban have a security cordon around the airport. So they said they did this because, that. well, sorry, Politico says they did this to expedite the evacuation of... Those people from Afghanistan, and well, basically, as they are relying on the Taliban for security, they didn't really have a lot of opportunities to do it. Now, the Biden administration has not formally admitted that they have done this. What they said, though, Michael, when when Biden was asked about this at the uh, on the press conference on Thursday night, he said he was not aware. Of the military giving the Taliban those names, but it could very well have happened.
1: I'm going to quote this this pit here in full, because I think it just you get a flavour of what's going or what's not going on inside the mind. I can't tell you with any certitude that there's actually been a list of names. There may have been, but I know of no circumstance. It doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. That here's the names of twelve people. They're coming. Let them through. It could very well have
0: happened i don't really know it's english Gary, but not as we know it when politico reported this they went back to the white house afterwards and the response they got from the white house that after the quote you just gave was it's unfortunate that politico didn't come to us before that if you had we would have given the same answer the president shared with the nation today that in limited cases we have shared information with the taliban that has successfully facilitated evacuations from Kabul. Good on the PR team at the White House for pulling that out of Biden's answer.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, not everybody, not everybody sees the thing in the same positive, sensible kind of a way. Other people are calling it a kill
0: list. Well, even Politico, when they reported this, one of the you know when you name something, you have the comma and the little description of them, the Taliban. Which has a history of brutally murdering Afghans who collaborated with the U.S. So you get a sense that that may also be Politico's view here.
1: Yeah, because it is. It is if it was, it's American citizens, then there's a certain I could see a certain sense of. But you're you're saying Here are the names of people that are our allies, our co-workers. With now gary on the other hand they don't need this list do they
0: you see that's the thing and this may be why this has happened assuming it has happened as has been reported is amongst the list of equipment that the taliban are understood to have seized is a great cache of uh, biometric information which apparently includes the fingerprints iris scans names contact details and all relevant information on Afghan supporters of coalition forces.
1: Right. So that's does that fit fairly handily
0: in the category of things we should have blown up before we left? Given again the Taliban's tendency to brutally murder people they view as collaborators, probably something you should have wiped before you left. Yeah, 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 Yep. But then again, the British embassy forgot to destroy... The details of the Afghani's who worked in the British Embassy when they left.
1: There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a uh, very t- tragic element to this story. First of all, the fact that the people who worked for the British Embassy, and including one in one report informers used by the British would now have fallen into the hands of the Taliban and to their tender mercies, and we can only speculate what that might be. This, however, also takes away a little bit from the Brits their capacity to point on the Americans and say, oh my God, you've done this so badly, how thick are you? When an embassy leaves, Gary, there is, depending on your embassy, depending on your, your the outpost or whatever, you'll have what they call a burn box. Or sometimes they'll have a burn room, which is a place where it's basically an incinerator and every all your sensitive stuff, all the documents you don't want to go, and they're burned in the burn box. Now, the very first thing that you burn in the burn box is so the list of your local operatives, intelligence operatives, informers, agents whatever they're the f- that's the first thing to to fir- and for obvious reason generally speaking the diplomats get out i mean even in tehran in 79 eventually they all got out well although i think some people died in the in, i think some there were fatalities in the taking of the the embassy but anyway it's the locals they're the people who get it in the neck i mean literally it's the first thing you do and he and they didn't do it
0: the interesting thing about it is that the story is in The Times. And what happened was there was a reporter from The Times in the embassy as the Taliban took it. And he just started going through documents. And then he found these lists of names and numbers, recognised some of them, and just started calling them. And it turned out that some of them had been evacuated, but others hadn't been. And then that he passed it on to the Foreign Office, and they agreed to sit on it for 24 hours before reporting it. Foreign Office, as a department...
1: In the government in the UK would traditionally have been seen as the place for the highest of the high flyers, the creme la la creme. They went into the Foreign Office, Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Now maybe people in the Treasury would dispute that, but that was the, that has historically been the perception. These are the best of the best. What's going on? It's it's not a, it's not it's it's, no, it's not much of a mystery whether the Chinese are going to take over the world. If this is the best of the best, and in UK and in the United States, the two great imperial powers of the last 100-odd, 200-odd years, they cannot, the piss-up and the brewery, Gary, the, seems to be the obvious example, but they seem to be lacking in, you know, kind of basic shit.
0: So the Times are not kind to the British Foreign Office in this article, it's pretty damning of it. But one of the interesting points they make is they're talking about the documents that were still there, and they point out that they also didn't destroy any of the CVs they got, or the cover letters. So people who wanted to work with the British. And we're talking, you know, about why they would want to work with the British and how much they wanted to work with the British. Which you might think, Michael, could have some quite damning information from the perspective of the Taliban for people. Well, yeah. And then, you know, the Times point out, they quote from one of the cover letters, and uh, the phrase they use is, uh, these words could now cost him his liberty, or his life. Then they ask this question, Michael. Did this 33-year-old from Kabul excellent at German, English, Russian and Dari, who had applied for an interpreter's job on the back of previous experience working with the Germans in condons even think that his name, address and phone number would be effectively supplied to the Taliban by British embassy staff. I mean, can you imagine though, Gary, right now, if
1: you became aware of this story, and you were one of those people, the terror, the genuine justified terror you would be experiencing, you think, the fucking Brits... They gave, they just left this shit for these people. And now you're sitting in your house thinking, well, what do I do? Do I wait? Do I go? Do I cross my fingers and pray? What the fuck? I mean, nightmarish.
0: Maybe someone reaches out to you and goes, oh, well, there's good news. We've given your name to the Taliban at the airport.
1: Oh, yeah, that would be such, so- <laughs> oh,
0: Great. Oh, yeah, that's, a uh you know the scenes in like a, a mob movie where someone just gets into his car expecting it to blow up and is just slowly turning the key and winching?
1: And they go and then it doesn't blow up.
0: Yeah, yeah, we've managed to do that. Like, I don't think the American people care terribly much about Afghanistan, based on the polling I've seen of it. But a swift defeat in Afghanistan and total victory of the Taliban was the best thing for Biden. The longer this keeps going and the worse it gets, and now particularly that you've seen American soldiers dead it's just not looking good and his press conferences about it are not good they do not build confidence
1: I have been I've had conversations with people uh, them on the artists and the Americans about this and I'm told in tones of Grand patronage. Oh, Americans don't care about foreign policy. The old Joe Joe Sixpack doesn't care about foreign policy. That's a... now the first thing is yeah, because you know Joe Sixpack in London, Dublin, or Bonn cares so much about fucking foreign policy because the the American the implication is always that there is something lower and less about the American average voter than there is about any of the, about, any other average voter. There nobody cares about foreign policy. However, this was never going to be. Once they did it as they did it, this was never going to be a three-day story. And the fact is, and people inside the bubble never, it seems to me, get this, or at least get this sufficiently. Most people are not paying attention. Most people are not listening to the news with that desperate care that the people inside the, the bubble are. But give them time. Give them time, and eventually, as this story goes and goes and goes, they will start to pay attention. And this isn't, a for, this, for Americans, and this is, I suppose, the point I want to make, for the Americans, I've been talking to some of them, and you've been seeing this a lot on social media, this isn't really, it's not a foreign policy story. They have, all over social media and over their own press, they have these soldiers, vets, of Afghanistan, two tours, three tours, whatever. Talking about the fact that these men, these women left behind, are their friends, their supporters, their allies, their brothers in arms. These were people who laid, who risked their lives and sometimes died in order to help American soldiers. This is now the American military is the single most inst- trusted institution in the United States, and is one of the last institutions that has bipartisan support, it gets support from left and right and across ethnicities. Probably the only people that don't really like the American military are upper middle class white people with graduate degrees from Ivy League colleges. And even them, they're still over 50. These people are now telling a story which is about a failure of, to respect the compact. The compact, which is, the military defends the nation and the nation minds the but minds the military afterwards. And this is a story of betrayal, failure to support American allies. It's a failure to keep your word. It's, it's also a dramatic failure of competence. And Americans value competence very highly. We have this, the, the image of, you know, the Germans as being all about the competence in the Swiss or whatever. But we know from polling, we know from history, that Americans value competence very, very highly. And what Biden, this story is going on longer and longer, and more and more people are going to start to pay attention and start to notice two things. Americans have broken their word, they've broken the compact, and this has been grossly incompetent. And that cuts across political divides, Gary, in in American politics. This has been a shit show. And there's no way they can spin it as anything but a shit show. The 85 million, 85 billion worth of material left behind. The biometrics left behind. The the, the, the intelligence, the, the, taking the soldiers out before you evacuate your embassy. Now we're still in the process. And he's given this 31, 31st of August deadline, which seems to just have... It inevitably created the fact that there are going to be hostages, if you want to call them that, left behind. It's an absolute fucking shoot show.
0: It's not looking great. And then you have all of the stuff with the British Foreign Minister, which I don't know if you've been following, Michael. But the British Foreign Minister, Dominic Raab, was on holiday, as this was coming up to it, And he didn't come home. Apparently he he was told to come home, then had a private conversation with Boris, and was told he could stay until Sunday. So that happened, and then it turned out that... He was meant to have a call with the Afghan foreign minister because the Afghan foreign minister wanted to start evacuating interpreters as the Taliban advanced on Kabul because the interpreters are highly likely to be killed. And Rab didn't make that call because he was on holiday and no one made that call.
1: There is a long tradition in politics. Yeah, yeah. In, there's a very long and noble tradition in politics that when you go on holidays, shit happens. And if you choose to stay on holidays, horrible shit will happen and it will end up crucifying you. You're on holidays, something happens, you go home and you promise your wife we will take a long weekend sometime in October. It, it, it robs the foreign sex decision. Now, it's also Boris, of course. You could just, it's so typically Boris, isn't it? You get an
0: Ah, it could be all right. And then your foreign minister is sunning himself on a beach in Crete when Kabul falls. It's not a good optic. And you, he,
1: but what is really the savagely bad optic is this, or audio, if you like, is the fact that he doesn't take the call with the Afghan, the Afghan foreign minister. So, which is about the evacuation of these these poor people, and this is now your proper life and death stuff. And he hasn't taken a phone call. And there's no,
0: there's no explanation why. Nobody has said why he didn't take it. Well, what, what what they're actually saying is that he received advice that he should take the call. But situations moved quickly and it was delegated to a junior minister. And then it subsequently turned out that the junior minister had not never made that call.
1: Yeah, so effectively, would have junior minister has taken the call. He didn't actually take the call. But no explanation, even though advice was given, no explanation of why Rab didn't. Why Rab didn't think it was sufficiently important or serious, the fact that there were going to be... T- I mean, we're talking not dozens, but hundreds or thousands of people who had worked with the British over the last 20 years. Because the British have had fairly substantial involvement in Afghanistan.
0: Well, they, they have. They, they had a specific... You have their foreign minister, and then you also had a minister for Afghanistan, who was also on holiday. <laughs> well, it's holiday time. It is holiday time. But, you know, you go on holiday, that's when Kabul is going to fall.
1: August is obviously not holiday time in Afghanistan. It's, uh, it's a shit show. And I go, But I go back to my point just to... Because Don Ryan, this shouldn't be seen, I don't think, as, as something which can be brushed aside from the politics of America simply because it's a foreign story. To me, it's not a foreign story anymore. It's a domestic story because it's about the capacity of the government to manage a situation. And they've shown themselves dramatically incapable of handling that situation.
0: I don't think any Western country, and I include ourselves in this to the limited extent the Irish government has gotten involved with things there, has acted with a great deal of competency in dealing with even just the evacuation.
1: But even the evacu- our own, yeah, even ourselves, look at, look at,
0: we, they, what, they went in, they got,
1: what, a couple of dozen out, and now they've announced they're not going back. Do you know what, there is a sense in which it would have made more, it would be more sensibly uh, positioned politically to say... Well, no, sending the Rangers in—we've been advised wouldn't be a good idea. We are working with our partners in Europe, and our friends in the United Kingdom to ensure the safety of Irish people. Blah blah blah. Rather than send them right and then say, "Oh no, we're not going back again because it's gone dangerous." When you when you have admitted that there are whatever I I had the number I can not find it now the number of Irish citizens that are still there, what twenty six, thirty six, something. But we know there are still Irish citizens still on the ground. And we have announced that we're not going back to get them. And it seems to me, in a in a way, worse to have d- done it that way than not to have done it at all. Well,
0: we tried. Well, yeah, we tried. On the plus side, we didn't give their names to the Taliban. You see, Gary, you say that. Well, we don't know that, do we? No, we actually don't know that. They may have done that to get through the security cordon. I the whole know we have to give the Taliban the names so that people could get into the airport. What? You would have thought the Americans would have just secured an exit themselves, and then they... That might have not been optimal, Michael. It might have made you a target. But at the same time, you wouldn't have had to give the names of the people the Taliban will likely want to kill to the Taliban. That seems to have been what the French did. You see, the French just use the French for an legion, and then they don't care if they die. <laughs> But did they use the the
1: legion? I don't know. I've no. But the way it was being reported was the French had had this specifically that phrase had established a, cord, a corridor of access uh, from where they were collecting people into the airport and got them out. I don't. You know, we tend to be a little bit francophile here I, on this show, which is a bit, I think unusual. But you, I just kind of admire their capacity to care less than other people. And still get the job done.
0: Yeah, the French have uh, I, I think it is partially because they, they make such heavy use of the French Foreign Legion. And it's not French people dying. And they're like, well, the Legion, yeah, they die. That's kind of their job. So, like, suck it up.
1: And they know that at any one stage in the world there are going to be enough borderline sociopaths running away from something. That the French... The, the, the Legion is never going to run out of people.
0: Ah, the joy of France. So, from that on to another slightly better topic... Rent controls in Sweden, Michael. Or rent controls in New York. Or rent controls, actually, anywhere.
1: Everything you could possibly do to fuck up a, uh, uh, and make a market irrational, they are doing. We are now looking, yet again, at rent control proposals for Dublin. And not just for Dublin, but for around... And then, what are they called? Hotspot areas? Is that the phrase they use, Gary? Hotspots? I believe so. And they're going to look at hot expanding hotspot areas. Now... At least they've been sensible in this when you have proposals to build 1600 rental units in places like Drumcondra you know the politicians are coming out and saying no no stop that because obviously that would have a very negative effect on the rental market in Dublin and cause rents to go up in a, in a savage way if you go into around building 1600 rent rental units Gary. I don't ask me to explain it but clever people have told me that was what's happened anyway there was an article. In the BBC, the headline of which is why rent control isn't working in Sweden. And you know the way we love, all love to point to Sweden for all the good things in life, because everything in Sweden is fabulous: healthcare, welfare, state libraries, everything. It's, it's, it is the perfect model of the social, of the social democratic dream. Although we would point out that since the nineties, they've been pursuing a kind of a fiscal and economic policy which is, shall we say, certainly right of centre. But I thought the interesting thing about this article Gary and maybe you could post a link to it afterwards is that you could substitute the name of any other city that has in the last 30 and well in the last 100 years used rent controls. What is would you guess he said what would you say the average wait time for someone who's on the on the house on the housing list in Stockholm
0: uh 9 to 18 years depending on where they are
1: because Gary's read the article.
0: No, no, I was I was familiar with that one before.
1: Yeah, they, they're, it's actually pretty famous in in the community of talking about the price of houses around the gaff. It's nine years. It's nine years for the is is the general. Shows the median figure. But if you're going for say a nice area, if you're like looking for D D four D six D eight versions in Stockholm, it's up to eighteen years to get on the housing list. If you were to allow house prices in, in Stockholm just to, to settle at what their, their normal rental value would be outside in the private market. The house prices in the centre of Stockholm would probably go by a little bit, but not much. Uh, rents in the, the suburbs would dramatically decline. So yet again, it's an, it's what it is, Gary, is a demonstration that very often these interventions by the state work wonderfully well for the middle classes and for the, for the rich. But screw the poor to the wall. And this is a this is a very good example. Anybody who has ever seen anything, say, in New York, New York has exactly the same problem with rent control historically. What it does is somebody gets hold of an apartment finally. And the one thing you do when you get hold of an apartment, Gary, is you never let it go again. You have that forever. And even if you die, you keep it because they don't tell the authorities that Granny died, and they come in, they, they, sub, they keep it, and they sublet it, and they sublet it, and they sublet it. Anybody who ever watched the sitcom Friends will be aware that Monica's apartment originally had been Nana's apartment, and so on and so forth. That it was a beautiful apartment, and it was, it was rent controlled, so it was ne- no, it never let go. One consequence of this, for example, is that people, young people with families get hold of a four bedroom apartment somewhere, and eventually the kids grow up and they go away, and eventually you've got a 90-year-old widower living in a four-bedroom apartment, but she's not going anywhere because they don't. And you get this pooling, this clumping effect on the best properties. It also means that the properties that fall outside of it tend to drop in quality and, poor, poor, and in maintenance levels. I lived in a city where you had rent controls. And one of the things was that if you weren't actually a resident in the city area within the, the city or the, co- the, the commune of Milan, the province, of you were called what was called a forest area. And rent control didn't apply to that. So it was actually much easier to rent an apartment if you weren't a resident of the city than if you were a resident of the city. And what happened effectively was there was this grey market. People were actually engaging in these, these backdoor biddings where you paid your rent up front and then you paid extra in cash. That was the reality, because otherwise you couldn't get a flat. They changed the law. And then what happened, Gary? What was the consequence of changing the rent the, the the rent laws in Milan, would you guess? Well, I can only assume everything worked fantastically. Well, within two years, it was much, much easier. It was a constant pain in the earth trying to get a flat in Milan. Within two or three years, it almost immediately, actually, but certainly within two, two years of the ab- abolition, suddenly you get an apartment in the city again. You didn't have to go out, out, out to... I just want to, Because it's Sweden, uh, we have to go back to the great quote from uh, Limbeck, who was the great S- Swedish socialist economist. And uh, he said, in many cases, rent control appears to be the most effective technique presently known to destroy a city, except for bombing.
0: I think actually one thing that rent control does highlight, which is something generally not considered, is that sometimes the interests of those looking to acquire something and those who have acquired that thing are not the same.
1: That is really important.
0: And you see that in things like the minimum wage debate is largely about that as well. You raise the minimum wage, it can be better for people who have jobs that they're not going to lose and worse for people trying to get jobs. But it's uh, th- there is this general assumption that everyone's interests are the same because they want the same thing. And that is often very much incorrect.
1: And those people who have the thing tend to be very enthused and dedicated to make sure they keep the thing and tend to be more successful lobbyists and communicators. I mean, the example of the minimum wage, one of the problems of the minimum wage, again, is quite unintended consequences, is the fact that, and if you look at work of Thomas Sowell and others on this. The real problem, okay, there's a dis- debate about whether minimum wage actually costs jobs. It may cost some jobs, At it, it, it may be marginal, but what you don't see are the jobs that are not created. And more specifically, the fact that the people who are most hurt by a minimum wage are the people who are those who are least qualified and find it most difficult to enter the job market. The only thing that they can effectively use as a negotiating tool in the absence of qualifications and experience is the price at which they're willing to enter the market. So a guy comes to you, like you, the, the soul will talk about, say, a 16-year-old African-American kid who's a high college, high school high school dropout, doesn't have a GD, GED, and he wants to get a job, but he's competing against white kids who are going to college and they have all the social capital. And they're going to work for fifteen dollars an hour, but he say, oh, I'll work for ten dollars an hour, and that may make him at a certain point marginally interesting. He now he, he's now entering the market and can start to acquire the kind of social capital that will allow him to go up the go up the go up the ladder and to eventually earn more and get a career and do what he wants. But by setting that bar at a at point, you're actively discriminating against people like him. And you mean he, he can't get into the market, he can't get the job, which means he can't accrue the kind of social capital that he needs. And that's a really rotten thing to do to kids who are
0: poor already. Yeah, but it is what it is. The article on the BBC is well worth reading. It goes through a lot of it.
1: be
0: that <laughs> just to get that reaction from you
1: <laughs> I want to <stuff. laughs> okay <clears throat> okay, <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> yeah I think that anybody uh, who's interested should uh, have a read of that because I think it makes a lot of points <laughs> about the unintended consequences of, uh, of rent controls. And I think the people need to be more sophisticated in their understanding of unintended consequences in, in a rate, And also the fact that rent controls have never worked anywhere. You know? It's one of the very few things that there's almost universal agreement about amongst economists.
0: Well, what's so funny about that, Michael?
1: Gary, I, if, if he doesn't edit this out, I, Gary is being a bastard and he's sending me pictures of fashion choices from, I, said, I imagine, the 1970s, including a thing called two-tone pants. And he knew exactly what this would do to me. And, he's now, and it's deeply, deeply bastardy kind of activity. And he's now asking me why, he's, why I'm struggling through a discussion about rent controls in Stockholm. But that's just because Gary is the kind of person he is, and that's why he's going to go to hell.
0: You say that as if you don't want the two-tone pants.
1: I didn't say that. I think they could look fantastic around Lisbon. But anyway, uh, I think we'll leave it there, Gary, for today. Uh, We should be back on Sunday, all all things being equal. Uh, I'm going to Dublin tomorrow to buy some two-tone pants. All the best. Bye-bye.